Amen. I think that's going to be a pretty good song to sing because it is. It's all about Jesus. And, and that's what we're really looking at in our text today. So if you would, open up a Bible, turn on a Bible app, whatever you feel comfortable with. But let's get to... Um, John chapter 18, we're going to be from John chapter 18, verse 38 to John chapter 19, verse 16. And that's where we're going to be looking at today. But let me ask you a question. Just throw out some answers if, you, if anything pops into your, your head. What would you consider an enemy of the Bible? It's kind of a strange question, but what do you think is an enemy of God's word? Anything? Our society, that's, that's a good one. Anything else? There's really no right or wrong answer on this. Satan? Satan? Who? Busyness? See, there's a lot of things, but let me ask you this. Maybe you've never really thought of this one. Familiarity. And here's why familiarity is, a, is an enemy to the Bible. Because when you know something... When you've read a verse numerous times, you've, you've heard a text preached, you know the story, uh, uh, and you just know it, how many of you know it's easy to just gloss over it? All right, I know that, heard that, been there, done that, got the t-shirt, I don't need to hear that. We don't need to hear that preached anymore. Well, um, in these last few chapters of John, we're in the final moments of Jesus' life, and every year we celebrate a holiday called what? Easter, and we learn the Easter story, all right? Every year, pretty much, this is what we go through, the crucifixion. You know, we, we go through the, the final moments every year. So I'm pretty sure if you've been a Christian any time, for any amount of time, you have probably heard or read the Easter story more than once, Probably more than a few times. And if we're not careful, the Easter story can become what? Familiar. And you know what? Why do we need to hear it in October? I mean, shouldn't we be preparing for Christmas? Come on, Jim. Well, we can't be familiar with this. We can't just gloss over it. We can't be just like, well, we know what it says. Can't we just move on? Well, this week, that was my, my challenge. And, and as I read through these verses numerous times, I kept my struggle was, how can I preach this? What do I need to say so it just doesn't sound familiar? How can I preach this that maybe there, it, it could be afresh in our hearts? That was my challenge. And I kept reading it and reading it and reading it. And nothing really, really was popping up except for one verse, and it's not in our text. The one verse that kept popping into my head was actually preached nine chapters ago. It was a verse that I have actually even quoted numerous times as we've gone through since I preached it in the text, I don't know how many months ago. And it's John chapter 10, verse 17. When Jesus says, I lay down my life so I can take it up again. And here's the key. No one takes it from me. I lay it 
down. I lay it down. And no one takes it from me. Now, why is it important? Why is this verse important to know for our verses today? Because as we go through this text today, there are three main characters going to bubble to the surface, and Jesus is not one of them. The three main characters that appear to be in control in our text is one, Pilate, two, the religious leaders, and three, the crowd. And it would appear that these three main characters, Pilate, the religious leaders, and the crowd, seem to be in control seem to be orchestrating what is happening to Jesus. Seem to be like, well, Pilate, is, he has the authority to release him or not. The crowd is cheering and, and, and wanting Jesus. So obviously these people are controlling Jesus' destiny. How many of you know that is not the case? I want to show today that Jesus was in complete control. And everything that happens to him in our text... And forward, Jesus allowed it. We need to understand that in this text, what happens to Jesus, Jesus is not a helpless victim in any way. He is not caught off guard like, oh my gosh, why is this happening to me? We need to understand that Jesus is doing what he was supposed to do. And just like when we saw Jesus in the garden back in chapter 18 with the disciples and when Judas showed up with the crowd, and I don't know if you remember or not, but it says that when Jesus, knowing everything that was going to happen to him, came forward, willingly came forward, and he's continuing to come forward through this. And so today, I want to look at six things of what Jesus allowed to happen to him. And so here's the first thing that I want us to see what Jesus allowed, and it's this. Number one there on your outline, I would encourage you to take notes, follow along in a Bible. But here's the first thing Jesus allowed. And number one, Jesus allowed himself to be traded. He allowed himself to be traded. So there, in verse 38, Jesus is um, having a conversation, kind of, sort of, with Pilate. And there in verse 38, after Pilate is asking him about truth, what is truth, he says this, it says this, after he, Pilate, had said this, he went back out to the Jews and told them. So he had just finished up his conversation with Jesus. Now let's recap real quick what's going on here. Remember, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane with with the disciples. Judas and the mob shows up. They arrest Jesus. They first take him to Caiaphas, the high priest. And this is where Caiaphas, the high priest, the elders of of Israel, all the religious leaders, it's kind of like the the religious court has, they've met. And Jesus is now on trial before the religious court. And they are, if you remember, they're trying to trump up charges against Jesus. They're trying to bring false witnesses to fabricate evidence. And they just can't get anything because they've never found Jesus guilty of anything. The thing they found him guilty on is when the the, the high priest Caiaphas asks him, Are you the Son of God? And Jesus, without hesitation, looks at him and says, Yes, I am. And it's that 
that they have found him guilty of blasphemy. And Jewish law said, if anybody commits blasphemy like that, they are to be executed. They are to be killed. But here was the problem. Caiaphas and these religious leaders didn't have the authority to kill Jesus because they were under Roman law. All right, They had their Jewish law, but they were under Roman oppression. And they just couldn't just kill Jesus because that would create a mob. That would create problems, and that would bring the Roman army in. So they had to go, okay, we got to get approval for this. So they go from Caiaphas, the, the, the religious um, courtroom is now done. Now they take him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Now the civil trial is going to start. And they take him to Pilate, and the religious leaders are trying to get Pilate's approval to kill Jesus. Last week, we looked at the first part of Jesus with Pilate and in this conversation, and that's when he's talking about truth and what is truth. And now he has finally wrapped up that conversation with Jesus, and he goes back outside. Because remember, he's inside. Jesus is now inside the, the, the governor's palace. The Jewish officials are outside the palace. So Caiaphas is now going back and forth, in and out, in and out. He's inside talking to Jesus. Now he goes back outside and he starts to talk to the people again. And there in verse 39 or verse 38, he goes back out and he says to them and he says this, I find no guilt in him. Pilate knows Jesus is innocent, but Pilate is weak and cowardly because he has to, he's so afraid of these people painting a bad picture of of who Pilate is to Caesar. So Pilate is cowering before these people. And he says, I find no guilt in him, but he continues on. He says, but you have a custom that says I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Now, it was really Barabbas and Jesus was before the people, and he, he's giving these crowd an option. I don't find anything about this guy guilty. He, he, he's innocent. I, he's a great guy. I don't see anything wrong with him. But then you got this guy, and it says he's a robber. A robber doesn't really identify who, who Barabbas was. Barabbas was a bad dude, all right? Like, we have problems in our country with, like, MS-13 gang members, and these guys are really, really bad, that's who Barabbas was, okay? He was an insurrectionist, and he was a murderer. And so Pilate is thinking, you know what? I'm going to barter with this crowd, and I'm going to convince them that this dude is so bad you wouldn't want him back on your street. Take this guy out. So here's, here's got you know, if you could picture the scene, here's Pilate, this Roman governor, decked out in his Roman garb, as the authority figure over Judea. And, and he could have just simply said, you all shut up, I'm releasing Jesus. But he doesn't. He begins to barter with them. He's like, okay, um, let, let's make a deal here. But he, he's thinking, if I give them this guy, they won't do it. So he's doing it, the crowd's yelling, and Jesus is just standing there quiet, not arguing his case, not trying to fight his way out of it, 
standing there quiet, not saying a word. Why? Because what Pilate, Barabbas, the crowd, the religious leaders, what they don't understand is there's a bigger picture taking place right now. You see, in our text, Jesus is being, is being bargained for to be traded. In our text, it was the people wanted to trade Barabbas and get him free and sentence Jesus and put him in prison until we can kill him. So Jesus in the small picture is being traded for one man. But what they don't understand and what they don't see in the bigger spiritual picture is that Jesus just isn't going to be traded for one man, but all man. He's going to be traded in a matter of moments for all of humanity. This is a picture just like it was in the garden when Jesus was arrested and he said, let these men go. This again is a small picture of what we know as substitutionary atonement. Jesus taking our place. Substitutionary atonement is Romans 5, chapter 5, verse 8. It says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is substitutionary atonement. Jesus taking our place, paying our penalty, taking the, the, the sins upon himself, paying for the sins of the world, taking the wrath of God upon himself. What you and I need to always remember is your default spiritual condition is this, sinner. That is your default spiritual condition. Your default, condi your default condition is not, I'm a good guy. I'm too, too sexy for my shirt. That is not your default condition. Your default condition is you are depraved to the core, a sinner to the core of your being. That is your default spiritual condition. And because of your default spiritual condition is a sinner, because the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3, there is no one righteous before God. And all of us are sinners, every single person. So because our spiritual default spiritual condition is sinner, my default spiritual situation is eternal separation from God. Because as Romans chapter 3 tells us that we all have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is his presence. It's heaven. We, we, we fall short of that because we are sinners. Isaiah tells us that our sin separates us from God. That is our default spiritual condition, our default spiritual situation before God. Jesus substitutionary atonement took your place. He took your sin. He took your place so that way when we, through faith in Christ, you come to the place where you acknowledge, I'm a sinner and I'm separated from God. When you acknowledge Christ, what he did on the cross, you acknowledge that he took your place, you acknowledge him by faith, as Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, that when we, through faith in Christ, we are justified before God, made right before God. You see, that's what Jesus did here. He allowed himself to be traded because he knew that humanity is lost. 
Humanity is forever lost and humanity will be forever separated. So Jesus traded our place and took our sin, took our penalty, our punishment upon himself. He allowed himself to be traded. Here's the second thing Jesus allowed. Jesus allowed himself to be broken. So after they are chanting Barabbas, in verse 1 of chapter 19, it says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. That's it. That's all you read right there. Okay? The Bible doesn't go into any depth about Roman flogging because it was so common. All right? We need to understand... Because, you know, we, you and I just read that and we just, okay, well, he got flogged. Or, or some of you may have a version that says he got scourged, meaning he got whipped. Well, we think of that like, oh, okay, he got whipped. Move on. Well, here's the thing we need to understand is we have to understand the sadistic nature of Roman soldiers, okay? A Roman citizen could not be flogged nor crucified. But a non-Roman citizen you were considered lower than a dog. Because if you weren't a Roman citizen, you were nobody. And usually you just became a slave. And so if, as a non-Roman citizen, if you committed a crime, Rome didn't take the time to take five years to determine your guilt. There was no appellate court. There was, oh, you committed a crime, you get the penalty. And the penalty started with a flogging, a whipping. And the Roman soldiers, they sometimes would even take turns doing this. Because usually one Roman soldier would whip a person till he was exhausted. And then if need be, another Roman soldier would step in and continue the beating. Now here's the thing. Roman soldiers took the beating of somebody in a sadistic manner because they wanted to find out how much pain can we inflict on an individual. They didn't care. They didn't, there was no political correctness with a, a Roman soldier. There was no treating somebody humanely. If you weren't a human, if you weren't a Roman citizen, you were an, you weren't human to them. So what they would to, to, to inflict as much pain to a person and as much injury to a person, they would take their whip, usually leather straps, and they would embed in the, in the ends of it bone, metal, or glass. So that way the whip just wouldn't bruise the back or, or just maybe put some lacerations into, but it would cut. It, it would cut deep. It would cut through the skin, cut to the muscle, to the bone, even to organs. Most people died at the flogging. But here's how sadistic Roman soldiers were. They would even take a person whom they've whipped and already died and still crucify them. They didn't care. They did it to show people, if you mess with Rome, here's what you get. Jesus took this beating, and his body, when he says, 
at the Last Supper. My body is broken for you. It just wasn't the nails in his hands. It was the flogging. His body would have been completely ripped apart. And the Roman soldiers would have, they would have taken joy in doing this because of who Jesus was. Because of his, because of his publicity. Because of the fact that he was, I mean, he was with Pilate. And he's, he's considered this king. So they would have been like, okay, let's treat this king with all the respect. And they would have flogged him and they would have beat him to probably close to death. But here's why Jesus allowed this. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says this. He was wounded for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the punishment that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. You see, Jesus understood the bigger picture. The bigger picture wasn't about him in that moment. The bigger picture was about him in that moment of what it was going to do for humanity. And so Jesus allowed himself to be broken, his body to be completely ripped open because he understood this beating is going to bring them peace. This beating is going to bring them spiritual peace with God because the Bible tells us that without Christ, you and I are enemies of God. You and I have no peace with God. We're separated from God. So Jesus, by being beaten like this and his body broken, it brought us peace with God. It, 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 he allowed himself to be crushed and beaten so we could be saved, so we could have the salvation. He did it for you and for me. He did it for you. Today, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, understand because of your spiritual condition, he did that for you. His body broken. He allowed himself to be broken for our salvation. And here's why, if you really think about this. If you allow yourself to really consider what the flogging was. That Jesus allowed himself. He, as he says, I, I lay my life down. Nobody takes it from me. He allowed himself to go through that. That's why you can 100% believe that Jesus is who he is. That he is the savior of the world. He is the Messiah. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the son of God. Not any other religious leader. Muhammad is not. Buddha is not. All the thousands of so-called little gods that the Hinduism has are not the real God. Jesus Christ is. Because think about it. Who in their right mind would allow themselves to go through this? Jesus was either a madman or a lunatic if he is not the real Savior. But Jesus is not lunatic. He is Lord. He is not some maniacal, weird, out-of-his-mind person. He is the Savior of the world. And Jesus understood, I've got to go through this in order to save mankind. Because without the shedding of blood, as the Bible says, there is no forgiveness of sin. 
That's why we need to understand, and I said this a few weeks ago, that we got to understand the seriousness of sin, no matter how small we think it is, sin brought Jesus here. Jesus allowed himself to be traded. He allowed himself to be broken. Jesus knew exactly why he was doing this. He knew exactly what he was doing, and he knew exactly from whom he was doing it for. Here's the third thing Jesus allowed. He allowed himself to be mocked. He allowed himself to be traded. He allowed himself to be broken. He allowed himself to be mocked. So after he had been flogged by the Roman soldiers, in verse 2 it says, And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, arrayed him with a purple robe. Now they begin to mock him of his kingship. And three things about the, 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 them placing the crown on, their, on his head that they don't realize is one is they are crowning literally the king of the universe. Jesus is, the, they don't realize who Jesus really is. They don't realize he is the king of kings. He's the Lord of Lords. And, and one of these days, he's coming back and he's going to be wearing his crown. But in this moment, they are mocking him, ridiculing him, belittling him, putting the crown of thorns on his head, thinking, oh, some king you are, when in reality, he is the king. Second thing they don't realize is what the, the crown really stands for is in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned and sin came in and God cursed Eve, he cursed Adam, and he also cursed the world, the earth, it says that part of the curse of the earth is that Adam would have to work the soil. And in that soil, two things are going to grow. Thorns and thistles. Thorns were part of the curse. Now thorns are part of redemption. In the beginning, it was all about the curse. Now they're putting a crown of thorns on his head. And those thorns are a symbol of, of redemption that is coming. It's the symbol of the fact that when Jesus is nailed to the tree, as the Bible says, and as I said last week, anybody who is nailed to the tree is cursed. And Jesus, with that crown of thorns on his head, is basically saying, in a matter of moments, I will be redeeming this earth and this planet and people from the curse. But the third thing that these guys did not understand and realize was that Jesus was doing this for them. Jesus was doing this for them. Oh, but Jim, how could, look at what he did. Look at what these, look at what these guys did to him. There's, how in the world could, sin is sin. It's all ugly. Before God, it doesn't matter what you do. Sin is sin and sin separates you. Sin is ugly and sin had to be paid for. And these guys did not understand that Jesus was paying for their sin too. They were mocking him. But Jesus was redeeming them. 
And hopefully, and we don't know the story of any of the, maybe some of these soldiers in the years ahead, maybe they ran into Paul, maybe they ran into Peter or James, maybe they ran into other believers and they heard a story about, do you know who Jesus Christ was? And I sit and wonder if maybe some of these Roman soldiers were like, I was there. I whipped him. I put the crown on his head. And I sit and wonder if maybe these, some of these soldiers heard the, the gospel story and, and, and somebody looked at that Roman soldier and said, Jesus died for you. I want, I want to believe that, that maybe one Roman soldier came to saving grace. Then it goes on. Look at verse 3. It says, they came to him saying, so they put the, the crown of thorns on his head. The, 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 the purple robe, and they came to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. In the book of Matthew, in chapter 27, it says that they spit on him and struck him in the head with a reed, which was a long wooden rod. You see, they'd put the reed in his hand and the, the thorns on his head, the robe on him, and, and there he is standing like a royal king, and they're first bowing to him, mocking him. Hail, king of the Jews. And then when they were done doing that, they took the rod, they hit him in the head with it, smacking him, beating him in the face, spitting in him. Jesus enduring the hatred of people. And after they were done with their sporting of Jesus, in verse 4 it says, Pilate went out again, and so they had brought him back to Pilate. It says, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know what I, that I have found no guilt in him. And Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns, the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. We sang, Behold the man. The lamb. He just sees a man. But Jesus was the lamb to be sacrificed. As Isaiah said, he was like sheep that went to the slaughter. And But yet Pilate, in a mocking way, is saying, Behold your king. Behold the man. Jesus would have been standing there, and, and Pilate would have, is basically saying, look how weak this man is. Look how pathetic. Look how, look how beaten he is. Look how, really, you're so afraid of this guy? You, you, you would rather have a murderer back on the street? Really? Look at him. He's pathetic. How much damage? How much? How much? I don't see no, no army with this guy. What in the world can he? That's basically where Pilate's going with this. He needs to mock Jesus so badly, he's trying to convince the crowd, why are we so afraid of this guy? He's mocking him. He's showing how pathetic he is. But Jesus continues to just stand there, saying nothing. Because he's allowing himself to go through this. And so Pilate is trying to convince the crowd he's innocent. I don't want to do anything with him. But his 
words fall on deaf ears, which leads to the fourth thing Jesus allowed, and it's this. Jesus allowed himself to be rejected. Not just mocked, but now rejected. So Jesus is standing before the crowd, and Pilate is like, behold the man. And in verse 6, it says, when the chief priests and the officials, or when the officers, the officers, remember, those were the temple guards, the, the temple security. So when all these people saw Jesus, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said, you take him yourselves and you crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. These religious leaders were like sharks in the water with blood. They got the smell and they attacked. They hated Jesus and he wanted everything, nothing about Jesus. They rejected Pilate's words. They rejected the idea of freeing Jesus. They rejected Jesus and they only had one thing on their mind. Pilate, you better execute him. You better get this done. That is where these people are. They're chanting, crucify Jesus. They want him dead. And as you read this, you're thinking the crowd is in control here because they, they have so much power over this Roman governor, he can't even make a decision. So you've got to be sitting going, why in the world? How is this crowd controlling the, the scenario? They're not. Jesus truly is still in control. Because think about this for a moment. Do you remember the account in, in Matthew when Jesus went up to the mountain with Peter, James, and John? And we call that what, what account? What would we call that story? The Mount of Transfiguration. What it says is in Matthew chapter 27, verse 17, it says that when they went up there, it says that Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Let me ask you, when he was standing there, now at this time, Jesus standing there, try to picture this in your head, he would have been unrecognizable. In fact, Isaiah chapter 52 tells us this. It says that his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. You wouldn't have recognized who Jesus was. That's how brutally beaten he would have been. Now, as he was standing there, would Jesus have the power to go, I am done, and I'm going to show these people who I am? And I mean, he healed people instantly. He rose people from the dead instantly. Let me ask you, in an instant, could he just went whoosh and glory come upon him? Instantly healed himself. And like on the Mount of Transfiguration, be transfigured before these people. And the glory that he experienced on the mountain and in heaven just radiates so brightly that the people would have been blinded. Yes, he could have, because he did it once. It happened to him once with Matthew, Peter, with Peter, James, and John on a mountain. Why couldn't it have happened again? And here's why. He held back that glory. 
He held back that power. He held it back and he chose to be rejected. He he allowed this to happen to him so he could fulfill the scriptures in Isaiah 53 when it says that he was despised and rejected by men. He did this. He allowed it. And he allowed these people to reject him, to ridicule him, to mock him because he had a bigger picture in mind. Here's the fifth thing that Jesus allowed himself. He allowed himself to be judged. Look at verse 9. It says, Pilate entered his headquarters again, and he said to Jesus, where are you from? Because when they start saying that this guy is like, he's claiming to be God, Pilate was getting freaked out. He's like, man, I'm not sure what I'm messing with right here. And if you even remember, Pilate's wife even came to him and said, don't do anything with this guy. I had a bad dream about him. Let him go. But he doesn't. He's like, where are you from? But it says that, that Jesus doesn't say anything. In verse 10, it says, Pilate says, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me unless it had not been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Jesus, is like he did in the garden, is displaying controlled power. The moment, you see, Pilate thinks he's in control of this thing. He thinks he's like, I'm the chess master and I'm moving the pieces. But Jesus is like, no, you're not moving. You're not moving squat, man. Jesus at any moment could have just said, you want to see power? Do you want to see authority? Check this out. And he could, just like he told Peter, Peter, I could have 12 legions of the angels dispatched right now in this garden and set me free. Think of the angels that could have just showed up right there in in, in the palace of, of, of Pilate. And, and, and Pilate would have been like, he would have just dropped over death because Jesus could have showed himself in his divine glory, his divine, his kingship. But Jesus is like, no, I'm not going to show you that, but I will tell you this, dude, you have nothing. And the only reason why you're where you are is because God's allowed it. If it wasn't for God, you would not be here. You see, Jesus is allowing Pilate to be and to think that he's in control when he truly is not. Jesus is allowing himself to be judged. Because if you look at verse 12 now, it says, From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. And everyone who makes himself oppose, makes himself a king opposes Caesar. In verse 13, here it is. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and he sat down on the judgment seat at the palace called the Stone Pavement or in Aramac, Gebatha. But I like that. Pilate sat down on the judgment seat thinking, I'm the judge. I'm the ruler. I'm the king. I'm in control. And he's judging Jesus. Now here's the irony. Pilate thinks he's the judge judging Jesus, but Jesus is truly the king who will judge Pilate. Because there will come a day at the great white throne where Pilate, his spirit and his body are going to come back together again. And he will stand before Jesus at that great white throne and will be judged. 
Pilate thinks he was a judge here. He wasn't. He was simply a pawn. He was simply a vessel being used by the sovereignty of God. And at any moment, Jesus again could have shown his kingship, but he didn't. He allowed himself to be judged by a man. Because in the end of things, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the ultimate judge, as we sang this morning, will judge the living and the dead. And then lastly, the last thing Jesus allowed was this. He allowed himself to be sentenced. So in verse 14, it says, Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, not the actual Passover, but the continuation of the Passover into the the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, and crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered them, delivered him over to be crucified. Jesus allowed himself to be sentenced. And it goes back to our verse at the very beginning. Jesus laid his life down. Jesus, Pilate did not take Jesus' life from him. The religious leaders did not take Jesus' life from him. The Roman soldiers did not take Jesus' life from him. Even though Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat and he gave his judgment call and he lowered the sentence, crucify him. It wasn't because he was in control. It was because Jesus allowed him to do it. And at any moment of this trial, even in the garden, at any moment, Jesus could have said, I'm done. Father, it's too much. These people are too wicked. They don't deserve to be saved. And he could have displayed his glory. He could have just said, I am the hooting. And he could have just been like, I'm out of here. And I don't care if these people perish. I'm done. And he could have went back to heaven. Because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were in perfect harmony and in perfect unity without humanity. In the very beginning, when God created, he created man to have a relationship with. God wanted us. He created us. We didn't create God, even though we think we create God. We don't. And we are not God on any level. God does not come down to our level on any degree. God is God, and Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They created humanity to have a relationship with us. And at any moment, God could say, I am done. He doesn't, which blows us, should blow our thinking, I mean, blow our minds. That God, sinless, holy, still makes a choice to say, I love them. I want a relationship with these people, and I will forgive them. And he sends Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, to be a man, to die, to go through everything he went through, for you and for me. He did it for you as a sinner. And that's why today, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you need to understand that you are still in your default condition. That default condition is that you are a sinner before God and separated from God. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, 
your default place after death for eternity is not heaven. It is hell. Because as sinners, our sin is, is the stain that keeps us out of heaven. And the only thing that removes that stain is Christ himself. And Christ, he, 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 he did all of this. He goes to the cross. He dies. The gift of salvation is available for every single person, but it's got to be received and accepted. It's not given to you automatically. You don't have salvation automatically just because Jesus died on the cross. It's appropriated to you through faith. And you've got to come to the place where you believe what this says, that you are a sinner separated from God and that Jesus Christ was traded for you. He traded himself for your salvation. And when you place your faith in him alone, not in who you are, not in what you, how good you are or how religious you are, but only, Jesus, I need you. Be my Savior. That is when you have salvation. And today, if you have never accepted Christ as your personal Savior, whether you're 10, 20, or 85, today, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, today is that day. Why don't we all stand and close in a word of prayer? You would just bow your heads with me and let's just go before the Father. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus, that you took our place. You allowed yourself to be traded for our sin. We are the sinners. And our default condition is that because of our sin, we are separated from you, from your presence for all eternity. But Jesus, thank you that you came and you took the punishment you took the pain you took the beating the mocking the rejection you allowed yourself to be sentenced to a cross next week we will see you on that cross jesus you came and you laid your life down for the sheep you laid your life down for all of us no one took it from you and today lord jesus said if there would be anyone here today Holy Spirit, I pray that you're, you've already been working in hearts of people today. And if there would be anyone here today who doesn't know you, Lord Jesus, as their personal Lord and Savior, maybe they are a teenager here today. And maybe you've been speaking to their heart and saying, you need to come to know me. Maybe it's a young adult here today. Maybe it's a dad. Maybe it's a mom. Maybe it's one of our older people in here today who maybe all their life they've, they've been good and maybe have gone to church but have never accepted Jesus. Maybe today one of these people need to do that. So I would encourage you just right there where you're standing. I would encourage you just to pray this prayer just to yourself. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. And I know my default condition is sinner and separated. And Jesus, I don't want to be separated from your presence. And Jesus, I ask you to come into my life today. I ask you to forgive me today. 
I ask you to be my Savior, to be my Lord. I ask you to help me, and I want to live for you because I want to live with you for all eternity. And so I ask that you would forgive me and cleanse me of my sin. And so, Jesus, I just pray that if anybody prayed that prayer, that they would just be honest about that and just talk to me and go before us and help us to behold the Lamb who is crucified for us. And we just thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close.